Welcome to 49ers Access. My name is Sterling Bennett, and this is episode number 62 of the podcast. And today, we're going to react to the 49ers Week 14 victory versus the Cincinnati Bengals, including what led to overtime, Ambry Thomas's starting debut, George Kittle's making history left and right, and I'm going to give you my biggest grievance for the game it's actually against Kyle Shanahan. I think it's a pretty big one. I'm not sure how many people caught it, but it was very frustrating to see. But first, we have some house cleaning, but also a very serious note to begin today's show with, and that is Dante Johnson. Uh, for those of you who didn't know, uh, Dante could not be with the team this weekend against the Bengals because he had a personal matter to deal with, and many of us had no idea what that was, and really, it is not right to know that, but... Uh, Kyle Shanahan announced in his post-game press conference that Dante Johnson's mother, Harley Garner, uh, Holly Garner, excuse me, uh, had a heart attack and actually passed away Sunday morning prior to the Niners-Bengals game, uh, which is why he was not with the team. Uh, Johnson was able to see her before she passed away, but again, it's an awful, awful situation, and it really sucks to start off all these podcasts, the last one prior to this one, uh, where we previewed this game, and now this one discussing the death of what was then Demarius Thomas and now Dante Johnson's mother. It's heartbreaking. It just seems like every single time or every single day we lose somebody else. Uh, and so I hope Dante feels love and his my, my condolences and prayers with his family. I'm sure as a Niner faithful collective, we all feel uh, pain in our hearts for Dante Johnson as he goes through something very, very awful that... Many of us have, many of us have not been able to experience, uh, but again, grieving is always hard. Losing someone close to you is always hard, and and while I'm not sure how to really transition from that, uh, I'm hoping that maybe somehow, some way, that a win on Sunday against the Bengals can help that grieving process. Uh, but we also have some house cleaning to do. I want to thank the folks at Triumph Books in Chicago, Illinois. They actually sent me the Sports Illustrated titled the San Francisco 49ers at 75 celebrating celebrating excuse me the 75 years of 49er football uh, it's a great book i've gone through part of it a lot of pictures a lot of history in there that i didn't even know about um, it has the 75 greatest players in niners history in it so shout out to triumph books you can follow them on instagram at triumph books uh, and again thank you guys so much i really appreciate it i want to go through this as the holidays continue whenever i have time uh, but let's talk about this game. Let's talk about the Niners versus the Cincinnati Bengals. And let's start out with the Niners injury report. Who got hurt? And thankfully, it really wasn't too many people, but this could be a big one. Uh, Avery Thomas, he had a head injury, left the game late in the game. Uh, but the bigger one really is Aziz Alshire. He had an elbow injury, looked like maybe a hand, maybe pectoral, but it was an elbow injury. He did not return. He will get an MRI tomorrow, that being Monday. Uh, or if you're listening to Monday, it's today. And we'll find out more news when that comes out. So be sure to follow us on Twitter and Instagram, 49ers.access, 49ers underscore access to figure out what's going on with Alshire when that news comes out. Uh, could be a huge loss there if Drake Greenlock can't come back uh, from his injuries as well. Then George Kittle, I think we all noticed that he was limping almost the entirety of the second half of that game. He said it was just calf soreness. He did have the therapeutic wrap over his calf in the third and fourth quarter, but again, just soreness. Hopefully a week of treatment can aid George Kittle's injury. 
So let's talk about the game itself. Let's talk about what happened on Sunday between the Bengals and the 49ers. Yes, the Niners did win 26-23, an overtime victory. They did advance to 7-6 on the season and just one and a half games behind the Los Angeles Rams for the fifth seed in the NFC wildcard. The Rams play the Cardinals on Monday night, so if they lose that game, the Niners could just be one game behind Los Angeles for the the fifth seed in the wild card, which many of us probably never thought they'd be there, and once they lost against Seattle, maybe never be there again or even close to having a chance at it again, but San Francisco is now 10-1 in Eastern time zone games in the last three seasons. Their one loss was that 20-17 uh rainy day loss against the Ravens in 2019, uh, but now 10-1 and in the last three seasons in that Eastern time zone. A great win against the Bengals. I, maybe great's too much to put it, but a much-needed win, you could say, to get back on track, uh, but a very, very weird win. Uh, I want to run you through some stats, and, and then we'll get into uh, maybe the X's and O's and stuff of the game. So, the Niners have been winning games kind of their way, right? They've been running the ball, controlling the clock, no turnovers. That's how they've won the game, right? Uh, 40-plus runs, 37-plus runs per game. Uh, Jimmy very limited in what he's asked to do in their recent winning stretch. Well, on Sunday against the Bengals, San Francisco held the ball for 33 minutes and 50 seconds. The Bengals, 34 minutes and 17 seconds. The Niners rushed 23 times. The Bengals rushed 26 times. Joe Burrow passed the ball 34 times. Jimmy Garoppolo threw it 41 times. Literally the exact opposite of what a classic Niners-Shanahan-Garoppolo win looks like. Uh, And the Niners still got the win. Maybe they shouldn't have. (laughs) Maybe they should have lost that game. Uh, But again... Everything we've known about this team, about how they want to win games, it wasn't how they won on Sunday against the Bengals, which, in my opinion, actually does help this team, might give them more confidence of, we can win any way we have to. But let's go on to, really, this game was one of the craziest games I've ever seen, or at least in a long time, because I counted six fumbles, but it felt like eight. Two of those fumbles were recovered by the opposing team, both those going to San Francisco in their favor. I saw almost three interceptions, including that near walk-off pick six Garoppolo threw to Jesse Bates. Thankfully, he dropped it. There was a 14-point comeback in the fourth quarter, a missed game-winning field goal overtime that didn't end on the first possession, then a walk-off touchdown where George Kittle revealed the refs prior to the review told him, yeah, you have like a 0% chance this is going to be overturned into a touchdown. That's insanity. And a lot of that, what I just read, happened in the span of one quarter and one overtime session. That has to be one of the craziest, if not entirety, you know, entire game, The craziest two-quarter stretch I have seen in football in a really long time. And not to be outdone was the Bills coming back against the Bucks on Sunday. Which again, the Bucks did also walk off Buffalo with a Tom Brady touchdown. Because what else was going to happen? But still, this game was insane. 
And it's really funny because it started off really slow, right? Really slow. Uh, and, and that really, the Niners' defense was played a big part in that because their run defense was phenomenal against the Bengals. And that's one thing we've knocked this team for, right, for a really long time. And pretty much ever since Buckner has been gone. But even then, even then, uh, there were times where we said, uh, if you're going to beat this team, it might have to be the run. So on Sunday against the Bengals, I was pleasantly surprised that this team pretty much made Joe Mixon disappear. And yes, Joe Mixon had the injury. He was questionable through the entire week, but was active. And he is, by all means, if not a top five, a top 10 running back in the NFL. He only totaled 47 yards. Like in the Bengals' four scoring drives. So the two final touchdowns to tie the game up late and the two field goal drives. He only totaled 47 yards. He was a non-factor whenever the Bengals scored the ball. They were they had to pass to win. And and I think we knew that. I think we knew going into the game that if the Bengals wanted to score, they were going to have to pass the ball, but there was a point in this game where every single time Joe Mixon uh, was handed the ball in the backfield, I cheered. I said, yes, please continue to run the ball. We cannot stop the pass. Please, Zach Taylor, continue to call running plays. We can eliminate Joe Mixon from the equation. And he only had 3.3 yards per carry. The Bengals didn't even have four yards on the ground per carry in this game. The Niners dominated in the run defense category, which is something they haven't really done all year against one of the better running backs in the league. Like, talk about showing up when it matters most, knowing that your secondary was depleted. The Niners' run defense came to play. Eric Armstead, DJ Jones, Arden Key was playing inside. Charles Amenehi he was playing inside sometimes. Kevin Gibbons had a couple big plays. It's great stuff from the run defense which then helped the pass rush. And in last week's podcast, previewing this Bengals game, I talked about how Nick Bosa and company had to show up. They could not take a a playoff, really, because they had to aid the secondary. If Nick Bosa and Ebukam and Amenahue and Key and those guys could find pressure, find ways to get and attack Joe Burrow, that would help guys like Ambry Thomas, Josh Norman, and the rest of these cornerbacks on this Niners team to limit what Cincinnati can do offensively in their explosive rate with the passing game. And I want to read you some stats here because I, there's really a duality in the stats we have because Joe Burrow was pressured 18 times. That's a really good number. A really good number. Less than the Bears game, less than the Seahawks game, but 18's really good. The Niners' defense totaled five sacks. Again, really good numbers, right? K1 Williams had a really clutch sack out of the slot. Nick Bosa had a massive sack on third and three. Niners' 23-yard line, it led to a field goal in overtime. The Bengals were marching. They had momentum. They had just tied the game. They got the ball to start overtime. And who shows up when it matters most? Nick Bosa, he came to play. On Sunday, Ebukam, Key, and Al Shire prior to the injury. They all had parts in some of the sacks. And even Amenehu 
had a big pass deflection in the first half of this game. Again, this Niners defensive line, despite not having D4, despite having their struggles this year, really did come to play on Sunday against the Bengals. And I can't go without highlighting Nick Bosa even a little more because with two sacks on Sunday, Nick Bosa now has 14 on the season. That is the highest total for a 49er player since, you guessed it, Alden Smith, who had a franchise best 19 and a half in 2012. Now, now I'm not saying Nick Bosa is going to hit 19 and a half or 20. What I'm saying is, is that we are seeing that dominance again. If only he had a complete defensive line next to him. Imagine if Nick Bosa had Justin Smith. Imagine if Nick Bosa had Isaac Sopawaga or Ray McDonald, despite the -the off-the-field stuff that he had going on. Imagine if Nick Bosa still had DeForest Buckner, how good he'd be. Forget D. Ford. Key, Menahue, Ebukam. Imagine. And that's not to disregard Armstead and Jones, who are playing really good the last few weeks. But imagine if Nick Bosa had the talent on the defensive line that Alden Smith had. Like, that it just blows my mind. Not, not that they're wasting Nick Bosa, because they're not by any means. But, like, what Nick Bosa could do with a, a complete, incompetent, ferocious defensive line. And they played great on Sunday against the Bengals. But imagine what he could do with that 2012 Niners defensive line. Like, that... It kind of makes me sad, but also, like, in my head, I'm, I'm imagining, like, 22 sacks. <laughs> Just, like, imagining what he could do with that team. But the pass rush, because they showed up, because the run defense, because they showed up on Sunday as well, that led to the secondary. How does that impact what Ambry Thomas and Josh Norman can do on Sunday against Cincinnati? And I do want to give credit to Kaylon Williams, played a great game out of the nickel, out of the slot, Again, had that really big slack when they needed it most. Uh, most excuse me, uh, but again, uh, outside of K1, there was a lot of worry. Right, and Mosley's on IR. Dante Johnson can't play, and again, horrible situation for him. But it was going to be Josh Norman, who <laughs> we don't like. <laughs> then Ambry Thomas, and then maybe, maybe. Diamador Lenore would play a factor in this game, and late in the game, he actually did because Thomas got hurt. But I want to go back to the stat I read earlier about the pass rush. Again, 18 pressures, right? Joe Burrow was pressured 18 times. Here's the issue. When pressured, he was 10 for 13 with 167 yards and a plus 14.4% completion percentage over expectation. So I'll pull the stats in a very simplistic way. He was really freaking good when he was pressured. And that's not to say that there wasn't good coverage. That could mean, okay, like there were some really good catches. And there were in this game for me a really good receiving core. Jamar Chase, T. Higgins, Tyler Boyd. Again, kudos to those guys for making plays. But... San Francisco, knowing they were limited in who they had defensively in the secondary, knowing they had Josh Norman, who isn't that great in coverage, knowing they had Ambry Thomas, who is green behind the ears, like the freaking Grinch who stole Christmas. Oh my God, how bad was he? 
they had to play soft zone, so they were allowing easy catches underneath. Let's give them five, six yards. Let's limit the big play. Let's do what we can to hopefully contain what Cincinnati can do uh, in their explosive passing game. And for a lot of the game, it worked. For three quarters, it worked. And you're sitting there like, oh, it's it's 20-6? to six? Like, yeah, we should have more points on the board for sure. But it's 20-6. to six, And despite maybe the inconsistencies of Norman and Thomas, like, we're in a good place. We're up two scores. We're kind of we're feeling pretty good, um, but there was always that lurking concern of is Cincinnati gonna be able to figure this out? And then that light bulb clicked, right? Norman got burned a few times. Him and Hufanga putting them together in coverage is a nightmare waiting, waiting to happen. Like. And I like Hufanga, but right now in this stage of his career, he's an in-the-box safety. He's someone who you do want out there making that tackle on the open field. He's likely not going to miss that tackle. But when he's in coverage, (laughs) um, and many of us, including myself at times, can give Jaquiski Tart some you know some complaints or or throw some hate his way you could say uh, you're hoping Tart's out there <laughs> because Hufanga is really bad in coverage learning and be patient with him for sure but you're you're kind of wishing Tart was out there almost like ninety percent of the time and thankfully Tart has played a really good the last few weeks but you got Norman and Hufanga in coverage they give up that touchdown uh, late in the game. To Jamar Chase, it puts Cincinnati within one score, and then this kind of became the let's target Ambry Thomas every single passing play for the Bengals. And again, that's what they should have done the entire game. And well, we saw what happened, right? Uh, and I want to preface this by saying, patience, patience is the key in the development of a cornerback, right? It's very rare we have guys like Patrick Sertain Jr. and Trevon Diggs come into the season, and even Asante Samuel Jr. for for the small period of time he's played due to injury. It's very rare guys like that pop off year one. It's very rare they have seven interceptions, or even two or three. It's very rare. And so, I don't want to run down Ambry Thomas's road without saying what those other guys have done that many of us would say, we should have picked those guys. What they're doing is extremely rare. And Thomas, who didn't play in 2020 due to colitis, who almost didn't play in 2019, he's still playing catch-up even 14 weeks into the year. And he's someone who Shanahan has admitted that they drafted to be depth. They drafted to be a player next season, but now he's being forced into the light or forced to play because of the depleted secondary San Francisco now has. But on Sunday against the Bengals, what he showed us, again, was, despite me wanting to be patient with him and give him time, the necessary time to develop, uh, he is by far not ready whatsoever. And it's not his fault, necessarily, it's not his fault Rhett went down and Mosey got hurt and Johnson couldn't play. Johnson was supposed to start that game. Thomas would have been the third guy off the bench. But it's extremely clear why we weren't seeing him. And he's someone who I was okay not seeing, knowing 
We had Mosley, knowing we had K1 and even Norman, even Lenore to a certain degree. But Thomas on Sunday, like I said, he was he was green behind the ears. And it was almost like every single play, every single big play that happened in our favor was either offset by Thomas or every single big play that happened in Cincinnati's favor was due to Thomas having poor coverage. The interception by Jimmy Ward we had in the first half called back because Thomas got a penalty, illegal hands to the face. Nick Bosa, big sack, big sack in that first half. Overturned, Thomas, illegal hands to the face. Then he allowed two, two huge catches to T. Higgins on back-to-back drives to set up to set up eventual touchdown passes. Then he allows the game-tying touchdown, and on top of that, he allowed what very well could have been a touchdown earlier in the game to Jamar Chase had he not dropped it. Now, I don't know exactly what he allowed, like how many catches, how many yards, how many touchdowns. What I do know is he was awful. He looked like a fifth-round pick in not like a Richard Sherman fifth or sixth round pick, someone who hadn't played football in a year and a half. Someone who was undersized, someone who was playing maybe Pac West football against a Big 12 receiver or an SEC receiver, which he went to Michigan. Now, granted, missed an entire year again, but he should know better. But you're asking him to go against Jamar Chase, who was one of the best receivers in the league, or at least one of the best rookie receivers we've seen in a long time. He was outmatched, he was outgunned, and he was under, maybe not underprepared. He was in over his skis, in over his head. And it's not even really his fault. But if this is what we have to work with going forward, I'm sure, like you, you're, I, I'm worried. Like, if we're trotting out Thomas and, and Norman... For the next two weeks while Mosley's out. Excuse me. It's not a good sign. And thankfully the Falcons don't have that of an explosive offense. But they didn't go to Tennessee. Who just got Julio back. Then you look at the Rams. Then you look at the Texans who by all means aren't great. But they got Brandon Cooks. They have some players there that again we should win that game. But when you have someone you can exploit over and over and over and over and over again. Why do anything else? You get my point? Like, the Bengals should have targeted Thomas 25 times in this game. And it felt like they did. But trust me, they did not. <laughs> but on top of that, then he gets hurt. And I hope he's okay. Like, I, I by no means want him to be hurt. I want him to be healthy. I want him to develop. Like, I, I want him to get better. I hope he's okay. I hope the concussion isn't bad. I hope it isn't a serious injury by any means. But once he got pulled out, Lenore was playing good cornerback play. He was in good coverage. He played more cohesively with the defense. And I don't know if Demo maybe hasn't been practicing well. I don't know why he fell out of favor. And and there were times in the Seattle game, again, I told you two weeks ago, that as soon as he got put in, when Mosey got hurt that first time, that I would target him the first play. He's a rookie cornerback against DK Metcalf. Target him. They did. Touchdown allowed. And so on and so forth. 
But he came in against Jamar Chase and this Bengals receiving core, which is really good. And maybe it's because Burrow's a young quarterback still, but Lenore didn't give up much. And he actually played a solid cornerback in the very small uh, sample size we got from him. So I do think if Dante Johnson isn't back, and by all means he needs to take his own time, grieve, please. Like, that's bigger than football. But if Thomas is healthy still, I'm going to go give Lenore that job. Not because I want to damage Thomas's confidence, because it very well could, but I don't want to do that. But because we have to continue to win. And Lenore right now gives us the best chance to do so. And I know I talked about Thomas for a lot, but I, I do really want to give credit to Demeco Ryans. He, for what it's worth, he, he came into this year... I don't want to say with a target on his back. And and even I kind of pointed him out as, look, rookie defensive coordinator, Shanahan's having to compensate for him in certain areas. And he's kind of gotten some flack, right? Like that, that Packer game was the first big, did we make the wrong decision kind of conversation with him? Despite him playing, or excuse me, despite him scheming well against the Eagles uh, and pretty darn well against the Lions prior to that fourth quarter, which again was the last time Thomas has played meaningful time, so it's kind of ironic there. Uh, but he's he's been good. Like, he shut down Kyler Murray and Dungeon Hopkins for the majority of a game. Now there are some really bad spots, like in that Packers game in the fourth quarter, final drive, that second Cardinals game against Colt McCoy, none of their starters there. And I think... This game, it was like all credit goes to him. The run defense on point, the pass rush on point, the scheme they had in place on point, knowing he was getting no help from his cornerbacks, knowing he had a huge task of how do I stop one of the most explosive receiving cores in the league? He did it. Now, again, I understand lead blown late, but a lot goes into that, right? And having someone like Ambry Thomas, who is inexperienced, it was going to happen eventually. But the fact that they only scored 20 points, that's... I thought this game was going to be 24-23 Bengals. Admittingly, I will tell you that. And the fact that he held them to 23 points, like, kudos Like, he deserves all the credit in the world. Great called game. Great scheme. Demeco Ryans, keep it up. And even that Seattle game, it wasn't that bad. Guys got hurt. The offense struggled in that game. Struggled. Made mistakes. Turnovers. But this game, the offense played clean football. The defense played really well. And, of course, it helps when the Bengals are fumbling the ball, like, five times. But, again... Great job, Demeco Ryans. Great job. He deserves credit. The fans should know how good he schemed against the Bengals, how well and how hard of a task he had to accomplish. And he did it with flying colors. Flying colors. The fact that he had to give the Bengals five, six yards per catch for free was just giving it up. And he held them, his defense held them to 23 points. And if the offense didn't fumble things late, and I'll get into that soon, it was six points in the fourth quarter. 
that's amazing. <laughs> like, that's amazing. Uh, and, and so let's transition to the offense, kind of. Like, I guess on a, on a technicality, I guess. We have to talk about Robbie Gold. And it's tough because I like Robbie Gold as a kicker. I do. And he had a field goal earlier in this game. Allowed this game to be 20-6 to at a certain point. But Robbie Gold's making... He signed a four-year, $19 million contract in 2019. That's after holding out because he didn't want to play here anymore. They gave him $10.5 million guaranteed in that contract. This season, a dead cap hit of $8 million. $8 million. Next year... Dead cap hit $5.5 million. You can sign cornerbacks for that money. And good ones. You give a cornerback $8 million. I'm pretty sure Rhett's making 10 And when healthy, again, stick with me here. You give a cornerback $8 million who was elite last year. I'm just looking for a good cornerback to not be Avery Thomas. Should not be Drake Kirkpatrick. <laughs> like, that's money you can delegate to other good players to aid the weaker part of this team. And the reason why I bring this up, because the the way I view Robbie Gold is very similar to how I think I view Jimmy Garoppolo. And I like both of them, as you know. I, I like Jimmy. I like Robbie Gold. But the fact that it's not that they're bad players, right? Like Jimmy's not bad. Robbie Gold's not bad. But it's when you compare them and their production to the money they're making is when you go, okay, you're not worth the asking price. Like, that's kind of where I'm at with Robbie Gold of like, yeah, you're good, but you're not worth $8 million. You're not worth $5.5 million. Now, is Jimmy worth $27.5 million? Maybe to some, maybe not. You can decide that. And I think I would lean probably not. I don't think he's the 10th, 12th best quarterback in the league consistently. But he's a good quarterback, right? Like, anybody would take the 15th best quarterback. Gold is a top 10 kicker in the league. Arguably top 5 when looking at the percentage of how many field goals he hits, right? But is he worth the $8 million cap hit? I think we could all say no. Especially when you're missing game-winning field goals 41 yards away. I understand. Later game in Cincinnati than usual. I get it. The wind's building up. I understand. But you're paid to make that. Just like Jimmy's paid to make the Emmanuel Sanders throw, right? We bagged on him for it for two years. The same should stand for Robbie Gold. For what it's worth. For how much people want to run down Jimmy Garoppolo's road despite him almost throwing a pick-six to end the game. Robbie Gold is paid to make that kick. He's paid to hit that field goal and make sure this game does not go into overtime. And what did he do? He pushed it far right. This can't happen when you're making that money. It's the same complaint we have, or many people have, about Jimmy. 
We're paying you this much money to do that? For only 210 yards? Really? And one touchdown and one interception? What are you good for? Let's trade up and get Trey Lance. And that's fine. Those are valid arguments to make. And I think now those things apply to Robbie Gold. Maybe I'm late to the party. But I think now it's very apparent to me that, again, despite Gold being a good kicker, he is by far not worth that money. And you can say, well, he's good as gold. Yeah, is he? Is he? And it's funny because I think the the TV stats said he hit like 21 of 23 of his last field goals from inside the 50 that are game-winning. And, and then he pushes this one. He jinxed him. <laughs> but what did gold do in 2019 to earn that respect, to earn that name? In my recollection, he hit one game-winning field goal in 2019. One. And that was a 30-yard chip shot in New Orleans. And that's not to... Like, I, I will take that win all the time. I'll take this win all the time. Because the win's a win, no matter what. But, there are things you can do to prevent going into overtime and hitting a game-winning field goal with four seconds left, well, it makes fans, it makes a quarterback, it can make a head coach not trust a kicker. And we know how much Kyle Shanahan doesn't trust certain people on this team already. So he can't trust the quarterback. Now they can't trust the kicker? Who he's invested $8 million into this year? Who he invested four years, $19 million, carrying over to next year, where he's paying him $5.5 million? You want him to trust you then? I don't know. Maybe I'm. Maybe it's just me, but I kind of think I'm out on Robbie Gold. I might be out on Robbie Gold. But let's actually get into the offense now, because this is where things get exciting. To quote the cat in the hat, I'm so excited! This is where things get extremely exciting. Because George Kittle... By God, George Kittle, I don't know, I don't know if he just took a season off, because there were some plays last year where, and I get he was hurt for for a a chunk of the season last year, even hurt for a chunk of this season as well, but there were some plays last year where you're like, oh, wow, like the catch against the Seattle Seahawks in Seattle, the game against the, I believe it was the Seahawks again, in Arizona, he was making plays all over the place, right? But last year, and again, maybe it's just because it was 2020 and, and the disaster of what that was for the 49ers, he was kind of a non-factor, right? Kind of a lull year for Kittle, who was someone who just got paid, uh, who was considered one of the best tight ends in the league, one of the best offensive weapons in football. But now, like, he's back times a 1,000. George Kittle... And I think you all know the throw I'm talking about, or, or the catch I'm speaking of. That insane jumping catch on the left side of the field, where he jumped up, kind of one-handed it, Jimmy kind of hit it a little high, and he kind of, he made the biggest catch of the game, at least at that portion, to push that final drive towards, again, hitting that game-missing field goal, you could say. But a great catch, great catch, extended that drive, and I think what really bothers me is that, and 
this is more because people were hating on Jimmy. But why are people mad that Kittle made that play? Well, Jimmy missed high. You're you're mad because a playmaker made a play? Are you mad because Nick Bosa got a sack and the two guys didn't get inside and help him by taking up defenders? No, like, are you mad at Odell Beckham Jr.? Or are you mad at Eli Manning because OBJ made an insane catch in New York? No. You're happy because OBJ made that catch. And I get the ball placement could have been better. No doubt. That isn't the point, though. Why are we mad because playmakers are making plays? And it's only some people, well, not, of course, not every single person, but imagine being upset because the tight end you're paying the most money ever to a tight end for is actually producing and making big plays. Like George Kittle, in this game alone, 13 catches, 151 yards, one touchdown. He deserves a game ball. Insane. His last two games, 22 catches, 332 yards, and three touchdowns. Today was his sixth TD in five games. Like, talk about reestablishing yourself as the best tight end in the league. We know he's a great run blocker. What was the biggest knock on him? Well, he's not Kelsey when he, as a receiver. He's not Mark Andrews as a receiver. No, no, no. He's proving he's just like those guys. He can be just like those guys. You just gotta let him eat. You gotta let Kittle touch the ball. I'm gonna read you some stats about George Kittle to, to kind of sum up how good he's been this year. And, and really in his, in his entire career. George Kittle became the fourth tight end ever with at least 13 receptions in three career games. That's pretty good. Now you think? George Kittle now has four career 100-plus yard receiving games, which ties Hall of Famer Kellen Winslow Sr. for the second most by tight end since the Super Bowl era began in 1966. George Kittle has the most 150-yard, one-touchdown receiving games for a tight end in NFL history. He has four total, and he has two in the last two weeks. And we ain't done yet. George Kittle became the first tight end in NFL history to have at least 150 yards receiving and one touchdown in back-to-back games. The last time it was done period, by any player on the San Francisco 49ers was in 2002 by Hall of Fame wide receiver Terrell Owens. George Kittle was in the class with Hall of Fame talent, Hall of Famers, all-time great, not just 49ers, all-time great NFL players. We are witnessing greatness game in and game out. And I don't want to say at this point in his career, he's better than Vernon Davis. I don't want to say he's better than Brent Jones or Eric Johnson or many other great Niner tight ends. But let's be honest here, at least on this path he's on, he is the greatest or will be by the end of his career, the greatest tight end in Niner history. And if he continues 
to produce this play, or even a small portion of this play, he will be a top five tight end of all time. For all the complaints of, oh, we're paying this guy so much money, you're witnessing why. And again, you see the production, it makes you question why he isn't used this way more, and that's a great question. Why isn't he utilized like this more often? Well, now I think he has the offensive weapons around him that will allow him to do so. My only question is, once Elijah Mitchell comes back, once Jeff Wilson Jr., who played great in this game, by the way, looked like himself again, looked like the Jeff Wilson Jr. we saw last year, minus the four touchdowns in New England, but once those guys come back, maybe if Mostert comes back next year, but let's focus on this year. If Mitchell and Wilson are running the ball tough and 35 yards a game or, or 35 times a game, is that going to reduce Kittle's production? Is that going to make Shanahan not want to run uh, or, or make Shanahan not want to target Kittle? Because that's a mistake. When you have a guy his last two weeks over 320 yards. Over 20 catches and 3 touchdowns. You can't go back now. It's like it's like saying something you didn't mean to say. But it's like... It's like toothpaste words, you know what I mean? Where like, you can't put it back in the tube. You can't put George Kittle back in the backfield and say, Why don't you block 40 times a game now? No, no, no. We've seen it. It's out there. Keep doing it. Say what you mean. Kittle, produce how you should. Shanahan, utilize him how any other offensive coordinator head coach would do so. Can't go back? We we see greatness. You can't you can't take it away, at least from us, but from the team. George Kittle's producing like the best tight end in the league. He's a combination of Kelsey and an insanely great pass and run blocker. Insane. He is the best dual threat tight end in the league at this current production rate. And you cannot go back. Cannot. Like I said, Jeff Wilson Jr., great game on the ground. Debo Samuel, pleasant surprise. Didn't think he would play. Adam Schefter broke the news late. Matt Mayoko kind of confirmed that this morning, that being Sunday morning prior to the game itself. Uh, he got some touches. Surprise, surprise. Mostly as a, as a decoy. When the news came out, he got activated. I said, uh, probably shouldn't use him to his full amount. Not sure how much he can actually play, but use him as a decoy. Give him touches early. Uh, make Cincinnati think he will touch the ball more than he will. Make him run these kind of ghost routes. That's exactly what he did. There were a lot of plays where Debo kind of leaked out to the outside, and kind of just stood there. Made a defender block him. But, of course, like Debo, uh, even though he was being that decoy and opening up lanes for Ayuk and Kittle, what did he do? Uh, just one touchdown run for like 30 yards. <laughs> and and he wasn't the Debo that we've seen when healthy by far, because he's not healthy entirely yet. He's limited, of course. But eight rushes... 37 yards, one, again, one 30-plus yard TD run, and one catch, 22 yards. Effective, even though he's hurt. 
Chef's kiss. Mwah. Insane. Wonderful. A pleasant surprise, like I said. But we already talked about Kittle, right? We already talked about Debo Samuel. Who is the third guy? Oh, it's Brandon Ayuk. Brandon Ayuk on Sunday. He should have had two touchdowns. Didn't quite get the other foot in, but should have had two touchdowns. But he had six catches, 62 yards, one touchdown, the game-winning touchdown on a great acrobatic play. Kick it in the end zone. He had one rush and four yards. But the whole year we've talked about, you have to get the ball in your playmaker's hands, in your best player's hands. San Francisco did that. San Francisco. 29 times. It combined 29 times. Did Kittle, Samuel, and Ayuk touch the ball? That's what you call production value from your best players. That's what this offense should look like. And even then, that wasn't the fully functioning Niners offense. Mitchell wasn't there. McGlinchey isn't there. Samuel isn't healthy 100%. There's more to come if this continues. If Shanahan, if Garoppolo can keep feeding his best players... And I want to stick on Ayuk here for a second because Brandon Ayuk, his last seven games, all the talk of the doghouse, all the talk of Shanahan doesn't like him. He's in the doghouse. Shanahan's a jerk. And there were times where I said, hey, Shanahan, you got to get rid of that stubbornness. This kid has to play. He's too good. Well, I'm not going to say I'm wrong or was wrong because I do think we all agree that uh, Ayuk was better than Sherfield and Benjamin and Sanu. But they handled this thing correctly because Ayuk, they got it out of the way early in the season. And Ayuk, his last seven games, 32 catches, 453 yards, and three touchdowns. He may not be the touchdown machine we want. He may not be this pure receiver number one that we want. But in the wake of a Debo Samuel and really George Kittle career years, or close to a career year for Kittle who's on pace for a 1,000 yards, Ayuk has been, I don't want to say a pleasant surprise again, but he's been this, this wonderful accompanying piece to what looks like to be a great offensive weapon duo in Samuel and Kittle. He's like an amazing third option to have. Especially for a quarterback like Jimmy, who maybe isn't the most explosive quarterback. Wait till Lance plays next year, most likely. Imagine that offense. It's going to be fun. Real fun. But let's now move to maybe one of the more upsetting pieces. Before we get into Jimmy and my biggest grievance with the game on Sunday. Man. This Niners team. It's really funny because all the talk about positive things, right? The the uh, the defensive line, the pass rush, Kittle, Ayuk, the offensive weapons. Jeff Wilson Jr. had a good game. When I look at this team, there are key issues that will affect us down the road. That maybe we can survive week by week, but longevity, for longevity's purposes, it's very hard to survive this way. And I've kind of harped on this since the Jacksonville game, even prior to it, actually. But the offensive line, man, it, 
it's really sad because Trent Williams is having an insane year. Surprisingly, he got called for holding against the Bengals, but it's an outlier. It is what it is. But Trent Williams, a great year. Lincoln Tomlinson, a Pro Bowl year. But like I've said, once you start leaking to the right a little bit, it gets really scary. Really scary. And that isn't to say that Brunswick isn't having a better than average year or, or that Mac isn't having a solid enough year. He's gotten better or, or he's had stretches of being better than worse because he struggled earlier in the year. But on Sunday against the Bengals, who by all means aren't a great defensive line. They're a good one. They have good players. They allowed five sacks. And it's not just that they allowed five sacks. It's that they allowed a large portion of their sacks in key plays, in key drives in this game. Uh, There was a stretch in the third through the fourth quarter where San Francisco, every single drive ended in punts. And the offense went stagnant. And it, it isn't to say that it is the offensive line's entire fault. It isn't their fault that maybe a running play didn't work exactly how it was supposed to, or Garoppolo missed a guy or a receiver dropped the ball. There are other things that happen that, you know, complete that circle of, or, or, or complete the picture as to what happened in those three drives. But what can't happen is an offensive line in those three drives allow four total sacks. Yeah, that's what can happen. When Jimmy gets rattled, when he doesn't have time to throw, when you make him pressured and he moves in the pocket, despite me thinking Jimmy is more mobile this year than what he has been the past two years, really. Really, ever since 2017, probably the most mobile he's been in a really long time. He's just not... He's not a Trey Lance. He's not a, he's not a Fields. He, he, he isn't a Mahomes or an Allen. He's, he's not that. Like We know that. And so, when you get him rattled somewhat, like, we saw him doing, you know, the ring around the posy last year when they were playing the Cardinals week one. And while, again, he's more mobile this year than he was last year by far, he's not the best quarterback under pressure. We know that. And so, when you have guys like Compton and Brunskill, who, by all means, Brunskill's okay, Inconsistent, yes, but okay. But Compton is awful. Awful. He's better in run blocking, but he's awful in pass blocking. And I don't know exactly if this is the best way to put this because he's a rookie, but despite how bad Compton's been in pass blocking, he's better than Jalen Moore. And that's not a knock on Moore. He's young. He's learning. But because you have to rely on Compton because you're paying your kicker $8 million, because McGlinchey went down, because you didn't, because Aaron Banks can't play right guard yet, you're relying on guys like Tom Compton. And so, for what it's worth, okay, like that's, it's not ideal. <laughs> but, again, when you're playing edge rushers like Von Miller, Aaron Donald... Chandler Jones, J.J. Watt, who wants to come back, Demarcus Lawrence, Randy Gregory, uh, the list goes on and on, Zedaria Smith in Green Bay. Again, I can name anybody. Just like they target Avery Thomas, why don't all then just slide to the right? Because that's what it's like. Anytime you see a star receiver against Avery Thomas, or in this case, last year's case, Brian Allen, Ken Webster, uh, 
even this year, maybe Lenore, Drake, or Patrick, guys who you know maybe can't be trusted yet or haven't been trusted their entire career, like Compton, you start to wince. You start to go, well, I know what's going to happen here. Sack. Eh, sack. Oh, Donald Sack. Like, that, you know what's coming because you don't trust these guys because they haven't shown to be consistent. And on Sunday against the Bengals, I don't want to say this because I wanted him to get hurt, but for the sake of the offensive line, for the sake of Jimmy Garoppolo, for the sake of Tom Compton's PFF grade, thank God Trey Hendrickson was out the entire second half. Hendrickson came into the game with the most consecutive games with a sack at eight. He ended the game with one sack, so extending that streak to nine games. But he got that sack in the first drive against Compton and Brunskill. Imagine if he played the entire game. <laughs> like, to quote the great Bill Paxton, game over, man, game over. Like, Aliens 2, shout out, or just Aliens, you know. But but still, like, <laughs> like, it's not pretty, and it's likely a disaster. So, just awful. Like, uh, and it's not going to get fixed. I'm just really annoyed by it. Um, but let's move on a little bit because I have to talk about my biggest grievance with this team and Jimmy Garoppolo, arguably always the biggest point of contention in any win or loss. But I want to give you one more fact. The Niners' offense last week against Seattle, they became the first team since the Broncos on December 20th, 2015 to score 23-plus points in the first half and zero in the second half of a loss. Denver did it in a 34-27 loss to Pittsburgh. Niners did it against Seattle, and they hadn't done it since 1991. This week, San Francisco put up 17 points in the first half. In the second half, they only scored three points, excluding overtime. It's almost like this team flipped entirely in regards to scoring. Earlier in the year, it was, well, they can't score early. They come on too late, and they're already behind. Packer game. Seahawks game. Whatever the game may be earlier in the year. Colts game. Whatever it might be. They don't score early enough. There's a reason why this team lost four straight games. In a variety of reasons. But the main part was, they don't score early enough. They get behind. They're playing from behind too much. It makes them pass the ball more. That's not Shanahan's offense. Well, now what is it? They score early, and they stop scoring at all. Which allows teams to claw their way back into games. Seattle game. Bengals game. Thankfully, they were playing Jacksonville. Even the Vikings game. Now, we scored late in that game to kind of ice it, but the Vikings came back. <laughs> it's like... I don't know what happened, but anyways, a small tidbit, you gotta play complete football. Nick Bosa put it perfectly last week. He blew that one. This week, we almost blew that one, but we, but we didn't. <laughs> You're like, yeah, you almost blew this one too. You have to play complete football. The offense has to complement the defense. The defense has to complement the offense. You gotta play complete football. In every facet of the game. Or you will lose. And that takes me to my biggest grievance. Because 
the last few weeks, I think maybe outside of the Seattle loss, because one of the bigger plays many of us harped on was the read option with Jimmy Garoppolo, not Trey Lance. It is what it is. Shouldn't have happened that way. But the past is the past, right? But Kyle Shanahan, during the win streak, and even Jimmy Garoppolo for this case, they kind of escaped scrutiny for a large portion of the fan base. But last week, that scrutiny came back for Shanahan and Garoppolo, for what it's worth. But then this game itself, there are a lot of plays or maybe I questioned what Shanahan's thought process was. He had that Debo run late on the drive in the fourth quarter. It was kind of like, Jimmy's rolling. Why are you putting Debo out there? Like, Jimmy's in a groove, something he didn't have really almost the entire game, or at least in the second half itself. Jimmy feels it right now. He's finding holes in the defense. Why are you putting the ball in a injured Debo Samuel's hands? Why? But that isn't my biggest point of contention with Kyle Shanahan. My biggest point of contention with Kyle Shanahan is, and I want to ask you a question, because the Niners are up 20-13. to 13. I want to set the scene for you. San Francisco leading 20-13, to 13, three minutes and four seconds remaining on the clock in the fourth quarter. It's second and eight. Now, I think you would expect any head coach or offensive coordinator to run the football, right? That's ideal, isn't it? Milk the clock, get it down to what you'd hope to be that two-minute warning, right? You're trying to ice the game. Now, keep in mind, your running back, Jeff Wilson Jr., in his last three runs, had ran the ball three straight times for eight yards, six yards, and two yards. Again, it's second and eight, a little over three minutes on the clock. Second and eight, you have second down, you have third down. It's about 25 plus seconds each play. The Bengals have two timeouts, but again... You're trying to get first downs to ice the game, right? So what do you think Kyle Shanahan does? Does he A, run the ball with Jeff Wilson? B, run the ball with Jamichael Hasty. C, run the ball with Debo Samuel? Or 4, does he pass the ball and get his quarterback sacked, allowing the Bengals to call a timeout and force Garoppolo to throw on 3rd and 10? What do you think he chose? And it wasn't A. It wasn't B. It wasn't C. Oh, that's right. He chose D. Why in the world? This is the same thing that happened in the freaking Super Bowl. The same thing. It's dumb stuff like this. In pivotal, pivotal drives. We are trying to ice the game. If this was a Super Bowl, heck... If we had lost this game, if Cincinnati had gone down, and granted they did score a touchdown to tie the game up, but if they had gone for two and got the lead, or had we botched and Jimmy thrown that pick six, despite Jimmy throwing a pick six, this would still be part of Shanahan's fault. While it's not the only reason why this game went to overtime, the defense still has to play. It's stupid stuff like this that it gets in the way of Shanahan being great. It's stupid stuff like this that has cost him two Super Bowl rings. And it's still happening. He has not 
learned from anything he's done in regards to clock management. It was bad in Baltimore in 2019. It was bad against Seattle in 2019 at home. Bad. It was bad in the Super Bowl. It's still bad now. And it's been almost two years. How long has this fan base, despite it really being meaningless to the front office in San Francisco, how long has this fan base been saying, get a clock management coach? It's okay to delegate. It's okay. It's perfectly fine to say, I'm not exactly competent in this area. Can I get some help? It's okay to ask for help. Especially in 2021. No one's going to knock you for not being able to do something when they know how great you are in other areas. The best leaders delegate. But what does Shanahan do? Again, calls a pass play on 2-8, and eight, knowing, knowing. His offensive line has struggled in the second half, knowing they had allowed four sacks up to that point in the game, and three sacks in the last three drives. Eh, let's not run the ball, try to ice the clock. And Jeff Wilson Jr., let me remind you, was averaging 4.3 yards on the ground. Even if he got it to third and six, even if he got stuffed at the line, that is better than third and ten. If he gained one yard, I will take a third and seven in 25 seconds off the clock in Garoppolo third down conversion rate, which wasn't great in this game by any means, but he was, you got to give him the confidence to make that play, right? But no, it's pass the ball, gets a sack, third and 10, and Kittle misses the first down by one yard. Literally one yard. One yard could have cost us this game. And you might want to point other people, you know, it would have been, at least to me, on Kyle Shanahan. It is small, very idiotic, immature, non-experienced coaching mistakes that could have cost us that game in Cincinnati. Despite the win, despite me being happy, we are 7-6. and six. One and a half games out of the fifth seed. This stuff cannot continue. Even if next year Trey Lance goes off, and he is who we think he is, and he's Mahomes, and we are not in situations like this season where it's very close wins by one score, maybe a score and a half, 13 points, whatever the score is. We're not in these tight window games late where Jimmy's almost throwing picks to end the game. Where we're ahead 9 out of 10 times. There will be games where if the... End of the game, clock management is up to Kyle Shanahan. He will blow it. He has not shown any growth. And that is what separates good from great, great from champions, and champions from legends. He's not there yet. He deserves flack despite the win for what happened on Sunday, or almost happened on Sunday. But let's talk about Jimmy Garoppolo. Let's talk about everyone's favorite quarterback to talk about. Jimmy Garoppolo played a very interesting game. Garoppolo was 27 for 41, 65 comp percentage, 296 yards, 7.2 average yards per attempt, 
two touchdowns, no turnovers, a 39.4 QBR, and a 100.3 rating. That is, besides the attempts, that is the most Jimmy Garoppolo stat line ever. Right? He was efficient with yardage, yardage per attempt. He had two touchdowns, no turnovers, and a high QBR. Right? Outside of maybe the yardage being a little high and the attempts being a little high, that's Jimmy Garoppolo in a nutshell, right? And I put on Twitter, I said, can we finally, finally put some respect on Jimmy Garoppolo's name? But I want to classify what I meant and clarify what I meant by that because Jimmy, despite what I would look at and say was a good game, it wasn't a great game, and we're going to get into why it wasn't great, and I'll get to you why it was good, and I'll get to you why there are times where it really was a great game. Which is why I said, put some respect on his name. But it was a very rocky game. Right? So let's talk about the bad throws he made. I believe it was the second drive of the game. He threw a pass on the left side of the field to the left sideline to Brandon Ayuk. Ayuk was not opened. He was closely covered, practically a Wuzier, the cornerback for the Bengals, was on top of him. And it was nearly picked off, could have been a pick six, or at least a turnover in their own side of the field. Not a good pass. A dumb Jimmy Garoppolo pass. Things we've seen from him before. Eh, it was early, not a big deal, right? But still, not a good pass. There are many times he stared down Kittle and Ayuk in tight coverage. When they weren't opened, they were double covered. No chance of making a catch. What do you do? Stared him down, threw it right to him. It was either caught or almost picked a couple times. There was one instance later in the game where he had Ayuk opened. Wide open to his right side. What does he do? He looks at him, looks back to his left, runs in the pocket a little bit, looks to Ayuk, who's now covered, no longer open, and throws to him. Bad pass. Can't do it. Jimmy is someone who I think we can agree has a quick trigger. Someone who I think arguably has one of the best quick triggers in football. Now, maybe the decision-making isn't the best. We can all agree there. (laughs) But he has one of the best quick releases in the league. Why not use it in that instance? Get four to five yards, get yourself a manageable second or third down. Bad decision making by Jimmy. The most egregious one, in my opinion, uh, was in the red zone. He misused check. He he looked right at Debo or Ayuk. I don't don't know who it was exactly. Uh, Forgetting, excuse me. (laughs) Um, Looked right at Debo or Ayuk. And Juszczyk is standing four yards right in front of the end zone, wide open. If it wasn't going to be a touchdown, it at least was going to be at the one, two yard line. But it would have been a touchdown, would have made this game 24 to six. Would have eliminated any possibility of overtime. What did Jimmy do? He forces it in the corner. They don't score, throws it away. 20 to six. Overtime comes, you know what happens. Bad stuff, bad stuff, right? Stuff you go, man, like, these are the missed opportunities. These are the dumb mistakes we're leaving on the field. Here's the good and bad throw. I only saw one. 
but I guess there's two technically, but I'm going to classify that one in the great area, and I'll explain why. But but the throw to Travis Benjamin down the field, Jimmy steps in the pocket, steps up in the pocket, excuse me, throws it deep. We're all saying, oh boy, he's taking a shot. What is he doing? And you see Benjamin down the field, and you go, oh, wait, he's got somebody. But like most of Jimmy's balls, and... Debo's great at this. He comes back to the ball, right? When Jimmy throws maybe a, I don't want to say a duck, but kind of floats it too high, doesn't put enough under it to get it further down the field, doesn't give enough oomph, doesn't get his back leg into it. He floats it up, makes it easy all to pick off, right? And while it was a great play by the defender to get there on time, Benjamin is not a good receiver. And so when you task him with not only running deep, but with Jimmy in this instance, having to come back to the ball, he's not going to be able to come down with that. Now, should Jimmy had aired it out more? Yes. So Jimmy had, you know, led the receiver further? 100%. Should Benjamin have caught that ball at its highest peak and actually used his hands on his body? Yes. So that's a good and a bad throw at the same time. Many things to improve upon, many things to do better, many things that Benjamin could have helped the guy out with. But now let's go to the great throws. The great throws. And there actually was many of them. I'm very surprised. Um, the Kittle touchdown. I don't know how many of you were you know, reading Jimmy's eyes or at least looking at him. He looks to the right side of the field and literally reads all his progressions from right to left through all of them. Finds Kittle near the the left pylon. Kittle reaches over, gets a touchdown. That is a great throw. That is a quarterback who is going through every single progression. The offensive line protection was phenomenal on that play. Great job all the way around. Kudos to Kittle, kudos to Jimmy. That is an NFL top 10, top 5 quarterback throw. Maybe it's easy to make, but it's a great progression read by Jimmy. Finds the open guy. Takes his time to do things correctly. Great job by Jimmy. The touchdown that was overturned to Ayuk earlier in the fourth quarter, I believe, or not the fourth quarter, the the third quarter, excuse me. Great pass. Great pass. Just couldn't get in bounds. Just like the Jennings pass against the Vikings that Jennings couldn't get down in the end zone with, with his feet. Same thing goes here. Great throw. What would have been a great catch. Just couldn't get inbounds. That's really all it was. Now, on the drive that led to the missed field goal, I put the Kittle insane catch here where he's jumping up. Well, you can say it's a better Kittle catch than Garoppolo throw. I might agree with you. But, but, what Jimmy did was he put that ball, yes, it could have been lower. By all means, yes, it could have been. He put that ball in the only place his receiver, in his case, George Kittle, could catch the ball. He trusted his playmaker to make a play. This goes back to my argument, why are we getting mad for playmakers making plays? If Lance hit that throw, would anybody complain? If Mahomes hit that throw, would anybody complain? If Rodgers, if Brady hit that throw, would anybody complain? No. Maybe, well, it's Rodgers, it's Brady, what a wonderful throw. Because it's Jimmy, who has maybe not proven himself to be consistent with those throws. By all means, fair criticism, he gets flack for the throw when another quarterback might not. 
I think it's a good throw by Jimmy. The There's a throw on that final drive, on the missed field goal drive, where Jimmy goes his progressions, runs to his right, hits Ayuk for like 24 yards, in a soft pocket, gets the first down, on third down, extends that drive, and leads San Francisco down the field. I believe it was right before the near pick six, but again, great job by Jimmy to find the open guy, go through progressions. There's been some bad, (laughs) there's been some okay, there's been some good, but I still have another Jimmy Garoppolo tidbit that'll kind of be the cherry on this ice cream sundae of the win. In overtime, what many would say, well, if Jimmy was better, he wouldn't have to go to overtime. Whatever. Guess what? We were there. Yes, they could have prevented it. But what did he do? Back against the wall. Down by three. Bosa got the clutchest sack of the year. What did Jimmy do? I got your back. I'm going to go six for six, 77 yards down the field, and I'm going to hit the game-winning touchdown. I do not care about Yak. What I care about is winning games. Jimmy hit Ayuk. Ayuk made the play. Stop getting mad because playmakers are making plays. That is the stupidest thing I've ever heard. Do we get mad when Tyreek Hill makes an amazing play on a 5-yard in route and goes 39 yards or 100 yards, whatever the yardage may be for a touchdown? No. Do we get mad when Stephon Diggs makes an amazing play, and runs 45 yards for a touchdown? No. Or Devontae Adams? No. So shut up. It's sh- sh- shut up. Playmakers make plays. We do not get to nitpick when our playmakers make plays. Be grateful they're doing it, and we didn't lose on Sunday. If they didn't make plays, we would have lost. That starts with Jimmy and trickles down to Kittle, Ayuk, Debo, Wilson, and the rest of this Niners roster. We won. Be thankful. Could it have been prettier? Yes. But do not get mad and bicker on Twitter when playmakers who are getting paid millions of dollars that we agreed to pay them as a fan base actually make plays. It is one of the dumbest arguments we can make. Come on. Jimmy wasn't great. Was he good? Yeah. Was he clutch? Yeah. Did playmakers make plays like Bosa and Kittle and Ayuk and Debo and DJ Jones and Kaylin Williams? Yeah. Yeah. We won. We're 7-6. and six. Let's be happy. Let's be grateful. We could be back losing four games in a row again. We had four games left. This is a game I think many of us thought we should lose, and we won. This is a game six weeks ago we would have lost. We would have got our butt kicked six weeks ago. And we won. We got the Falcons next. That could be 8-6. and six. Then we got Tennessee. Eh, what if we're 8-7? Well, that sucks. Then we got the Texans. We could be 9-6, and 9-7, and seven, going into Week 18, if everything goes as planned, against the Rams. You know what that means? That means the fifth seed could be on the line in LA. Shanahan, McVay, Garoppolo, Stafford... Hopefully at full strength. And what are we doing? We're feeling ourselves again. We're right there. Let's feel good. Decoy to me, Garoppolo, it feels great, baby.
It was a tough win, a hard-fought win, but it was a win, and that's all that matters. To know what happens with the injury reports, what happens with Aziz Alshire, what happens with Elijah Mitchell, will he play against the Falcons on Sunday at Levi Stadiums? Can San Francisco get back to the fifth seed? Will they be 8-6 come next Sunday? You are going to want to follow us on social media, Instagram at 49ers.access, Twitter 49ers underscore access. Don't forget to like, share, subscribe, leave that review. And until next time, this has been the 49er Access Podcast. My name is Sterling Bennett, and stay faithful. Stay faithful.